All right, good morning, guys. Uh, I'm, I'm kind of nervous today. Uh, Jojo took that picture. I'm kind of nervous because I'm sharing my testimony today. I realize um, somebody came up to me the other couple Sundays ago, and he said, Howard, you always say that you know, like you say that I say that I all, you all know my testimony, but a lot of you guys haven't heard my testimony. And so what was funny is that I went back <coughs> and I looked for my testimony notes, and it was like years ago when I shared my testimony. So there's been a lot of new people that have kind of been around, uh, started coming to our church, and they haven't heard my testimony. So this is the deal. My testimony isn't anything that's like spectacular, like I didn't like shoot people and go to jail for 20 years and over, you know, overdose on heroin or I didn't do anything like that. But I'm sharing my testimony because it kind of helps maybe you to figure out where I am or who I am and where where my heart is and why God has kind of shaped me the way he has. Right. Um, Somebody said something that was really interesting uh, yesterday that I couldn't get out of my head. It didn't offend me, but it was in, in staff meeting. I said a visitor came to our church and they said the thing that was different about uh, or was interesting about our church is that like you guys don't respect me. And, and I, you know, I think that they meant it like, you know, like they, you guys joke around with me a lot or, you know, but it was still, it's very different than pastors, right? Than you, you see, uh, like the way you handle uh, Pastor Hong, right? Or, or maybe older. And I was, you know, I was thinking, and it bothered me a lot because I was like, I, to- I totally feel respected. Like, not, res- <laughs> not like respected as in like, oh, hello, Pastor Howard, welcome, you know, like we're so glad. Can I get you some tea? No, you never, none of you never do that to me, but... I feel like really respected in the sense that like I feel like I get calls all the time. I get text messages all the time. I get Facebook messages all the time where people come and ask me questions about life and things that they're going with and I'm praying for people and talking to me. Like every week, it's probably three or four people at least. And so in the sense that maybe, maybe you guys don't respect me in a, a, uh, um, a figurehead as, as kind of like a, maybe a military leader kind of person, uh, but I don't want that. I think what you're going to find in my testimony is that you, I, I don't need for you guys to think that I'm like really holy or great. The, the thing that I think that is encouraging to me or God has shown me over my life is that most people in the world are just faking being holy. As far as behavior goes, that there's nothing in those people that, are, that is actually good. The only thing that's actually good in their life is what Christ has done in their life. And so their entire life should not, impre- you should not be impressed by them. Therefore, I do not want you to be impressed with me. I will tell you straight up that I struggle with things. I will tell you straight up that I had hard times in my marriage with my wife and I didn't love her the way I should. I, I tell you straight up that like, I struggle with doubt and fear and anxiety. I tell you those things because I don't want you guys to think, oh, well, I, I must not be a good Christian because I'm not like Howard. I don't, I don't, I don't, I'm not holy like Howard. I don't want you to ever think that. The, the thing that I want you to get from my life and from my testimony and who I am is that none of you need to live up to anything uh, that you might think as a, as, a, as a Christian. That the only thing that's good in your life is Christ and that everything in your life that is good should point people to Christ. So you look at my life and you see good things, you're like, wow, Jesus is awesome. You don't think Howard is awesome. You see messed up things, you're like, oh man, Howard sucks. That's good. 
So I don't need your respect. I don't need your respect like, like in that way. I don't need you to be impressed with me and my holiness. I just need you to know that when you look at my life, you're like, well, if Howard can follow Jesus, then I can follow Jesus for sure. That's what I want you to get. I want my whole life to be a mark of grace. Like, wow, Howard messed up over and over again. You're going to hear my testimony. Howard messed up over and over again. So if Howard can follow Christ, then I can follow Christ. That's what I want you to get. Is that cool? All right, so um, I titled my sermon, or my title of my testimony, Beauty for Ashes. And it's from that passage. Can you, uh, I have this clicker. I always tell TK to do it, even though I have a clicker. This passage in verse 3 right here to bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes. This is Christ, his, his calling, his, his purpose. And like he promises when we follow Christ, he'll take all of our ashes, because the crown of ashes is uh, the, the, the sign of mourning. They dump ashes on themselves. They rip their robes. They wear sackcloth, right? Like a really rough, trashy material, right? We put sackcloth, like for instance, uh, burlap, like in potatoes, uh, like you put a bag of potatoes. It's made out of burlap or whatever. I don't think people use burlap anymore, but it's just like a scratchy material. They throw ashes on their head in a sign of mourning. That means their life is devastated. And when you're talking about the Israelites, you're talking about like the Babylon and Assyria, when they came in and they took all of the Jews and they took them out of their towns, destroyed you know, their, their temple, their, their ta- uh, the, the walls of the city, right? And they have nothing. And this is Jesus, this is Isaiah prophesying, and Jesus is going to come and he's going to take the ashes. Instead of them wearing a crown of ashes, he's going to give them a crown of beauty. And, and that's, you'll see that in my life and what God has done in my life. It doesn't mean it's perfect, and I'll talk about that in the end. Um, but me growing up, I grew up in St. Louis, Missouri in 1977, which was very, not, that wasn't long ago at all. It really wasn't, at least not for me. 1977, Korean family. Yes, I am completely 100% Korean. My mom is Korean and my dad is Korean. My little sister and I, that's all we had, no other siblings, grew up in a, a small Korean community, meaning there was like, like the school I went to, like elementary school, there was like, I was the only Asian. There was like black people, white people, and me. Um, so I felt really kind of different and alone, and I felt at the same time like I didn't really have a Korean identity. My little sister, she was born three months premature, um, which meant that when she was born, they had to put, put her in an incubator and she had massive brain damage, which meant that she could still function, but she could not function as a... She stayed maybe like as a child in her mind. So some of you guys have met my sister. She comes and visits and we bring her to church and she's funny and she's always talking about me and sassing me. Um, but she grew up... Uh, alongside me. My parents were immigrant parents. They worked all the time. My dad owned Chinese restaurants. My mom owned wig stores, right? And we didn't have a lot of money. And my, uh, I took care of my sister. And she's five years younger than me. So like when I was in elementary school, I took care of my sister. I came home and I took care of my sister. As I got older, I took care of my sister. It was just the, my responsibility. Uh, and then, you know, I, I had a very deep um, connection to my sister, but at the same time guilt because I felt ashamed because she was mentally handicapped. And it was really hard. Uh, but at the same time, she was very adoring of me. Um, anytime she went somewhere, because she would wander the streets, uh, it would, like apartment complex or like you know small neighborhood, she'd wander the streets, and any time she'd, time she'd come up, she would just talk, to my, talk about me, her opa, which is really funny. So everyone in the neighborhood knew my little sister. I didn't know any of these people, and they knew me as her brother. So that's kind of thing. 
But my sister, because she was mentally handicapped and she had all these medical issues, she would have seizures maybe two or three times a year in which she would uh, try to swallow her tongue, her eyes would roll back in their head, she would tense up, uh, and I would, because my parents didn't speak English, I would call the ambulance. And this is, you know, starting from maybe seven, eight years old when I was seven or eight. So it was pretty traumatic calling the ambulance as an eight-year-old trying to explain what's happening to my sister. A lot of times it happened in the middle of the night or early in the morning, and I would wake up and I would yell at my parents, and um, I still had to talk as an adult. Um, And because of this, we didn't have medical insurance at the time. Actually, I don't think my parents still do. Uh, We didn't have medical insurance, and so the hospital bills kept mounting and mounting and mounting. And that caused some weird, weird things to happen. My father ran away from the bank. Uh, so we would move every single year uh, growing up. And so I would go to a school. I don't remember any of my childhood friends, my teachers, my schools. I don't remember the school's names. I don't remember the houses that we lived in. I just have these little glimpses. I don't know if you know this, like whenever you move around a lot, you start forgetting things. So I, didn't, I, didn't, I felt like I grew up without a childhood. I moved around a lot. My dad, I didn't find this out until he was an adult, but my dad was basically running away from the bank over and over and over again because my sister kept having seizures and kept piling on, piling on, piling on this debt. Uh, and that was kind of like my childhood. Uh, my dad was very, very uh, militaristic-ish, uh, very disciplined, very stoic, very serious. I never saw my dad cry except one time in my life, and it was just a little tear, like a single tear. I'm like, you are a man, you know? Uh, but it was because my mom actually left him. <laughs> and this is Korean society, very small. You don't talk about your problems at church. Uh, it's, a, it's a really, really, really big deal. Um, because of gossip. Gossip is really prevalent in Korean churches and probably American churches too. But uh, in this case, uh, my mom left my dad. I remember coming home from school. My mom had this big hoopty, like blue, like made out of like tank material uh, car with a giant trunk in which you could put like dead people if you wanted. I came home and my mom was packing all of her bags. And my little sister was there and my little sister, I must have been like 10, 9 or 10. So she was around 4. And I remember begging my mom, please, please, please don't go. Please don't go. Just come back from school. Please don't leave. Please don't leave. This is the middle of the day. My dad's at work. My mom is packing her bags and throwing them in the trunk. And I remember being as a little boy, crying and crying, crying. My little sister was crying, crying, crying. And I was holding my little sister, please, mom, don't leave, don't leave. And she left. And when she left, it was like... um, I kind of felt like grown up already just because I had to take care of my little sister. But when my mom left, it kind of felt like any, I, any hope that my life would be good uh, started to disappear. And she left, and I saw her like once or twice, three times before she finally packed up and moved away. Um, but my mom, when she, when she left, somebody gave her this horrible advice. She says, you need, to, you need to make sure that your son and your daughter kind of see you as dead. Like, you just need to stay out of their life, never talk to them again, and just let them pretend like you're dead, and then they'll be able to heal and move on. But if you're in their life, they will never heal. And this is like early on when, you know, Koreans didn't divorce. People just didn't divorce. And so they gave her horrible advice, and I hadn't, it wasn't until like, she left when I was 11, and I didn't see her again until I was 21 when I went to go find her. I went to go find my mother, but that's, that's, a, that's a later story. So the first problem in my life, the first major hit was my little sister and her seizures. The second hit 
and then moving around every year. The second hit was when my mom and dad divorced. Uh, and then in that midst of that, I was maybe 13 at the time, uh, I meet Jesus. I went to a retreat, not a retreat, a revival, where they, they uh, sing songs, have service, and the songs they sing for like hours. And I just remember being with my best friend. We were sitting in the back, in the very back, and I was just like moved. They kept singing this song called Shine, Jesus, Shine. Have you heard that song? Shine, Jesus, shine. Come on. No? We're going to play it. Sean? Uh, not right now. Uh, later. But they played it. And this song has like 10 verses. I, I kid you not. It has like 10 verses. And they played the song over and over again. So not only was it 10 verses, they played the entire song over and over and over again until like everyone in the room got saved. So I got saved. Like, I met Jesus in that moment, and I was really emotional because the song, it was just wearing me out. Maybe I was losing my mind, but I really felt like God was speaking to me, and the guy was like, you know, you, your sins can be forgiven, and all this kind of stuff. I'm like, yes, I want that. And, uh, and so I, I got saved when I was 13. Uh, my father immediately, maybe a year after my mom left, uh, after my mom and dad were divorced. Oh, the, my dad crying. Uh, so my, my father told my grandfather that my, my mother had left. And my dad was kind of explaining what had happened and how my mom, my mom's very passionate and fiery. Uh, like she has, she's very charismatic, like has a great personality. People, everyone loves my mom. She's that kind of person. But she's also like, she has this Latin temper, but she's not Latin, right? She, and my dad is very stoic and still and like, like he's really stingy with money, you know, and my wife, my, my wife, my mom just wanted to be free, spend whatever and, you know, that kind of stuff. So my dad was trying to explain why the marriage had failed, and then that's when one tear came down. And I came into the room. I'm like, what's going on? Because <laughs> I was, like, bewildered because my dad had one tear. Um, so my dad married, remarried, like, really immediately, like, a year after. And it was an arranged marriage by my grandmother. This is kind of creepy. Um, arranged marriage, marriage isn't creepy, but this, this, this whole situation. So my grandmother arranged this marriage with my stepmother, um, and my dad immediately said, yes, all right, let's get married. So they get married. And they wanted me to call her mom or new mom. And it, it, was, it was okay in the beginning, uh, but like slowly but surely, she was an older lady, um, my, I mean my dad's age, um, there started to become like rifts. Um, I, I lived with my uncles. I had three uncles and an aunt and my grandmother and grandfather, so seven. And then my, my dad and then my new, mother, uh, new mother. So there's eight and then me and my so there's 10 of us in this house yeah and uh when we lived together like everything was good we were all really really close we were all family but my stepmother started to uh act kind of erratic like she was kind of mean kind of uh divisive trying to separate my dad from from the family even though they were his siblings uh and then surely enough uh they they started to fight and argue and there was a lot of discord and then eventually i came home and this is when i was a little bit older I came home and my, uh, my stepmother and my grandmother were in a fist fight together. But the problem is this. My stepmother is like this like, frail lady. And my grandmother, she was like a farm woman from Korea. So she beat, like, I, it was terrible. Not like beat, like they, but they were like wrestling on the ground. And my grandmother just pinned her down. Like it was like nothing. Like my, I, I, I couldn't beat my grandmother in arm wrestling until I was 16. She was just tough. And, uh, and I'm like, this is freaking, this is, this is like nuts. This is like insane. And so eventually my family, all of them moved out. Um, the last straw was when my grandfather, uh, was, his stomach was bloated. He was feeling really un, uh, un, unwell. And uh, my stepmother, who was very stingy with money, she refused to take him to the hospital because we didn't have any insurance. 
So she refused to take, her, take him to the hospital. My father, his hands were tied because he wanted to make sure that this marriage worked. He didn't want to separate. Uh, so he didn't say anything. And my grandfather kept getting sicker and sicker and sicker. And my uncles, you know, they're, they're his children, they finally was like, this is enough. Because my uncles were younger than my father and they, they all lived under my father, basically. So they took him to the hospital. They didn't have very much money, but they took all their life savings that they were going to branch off on their own with. They took their life savings to take, a, take him to the hospital. Come to find out, like... Uh, he was dying of cancer and there was nothing they could do but they could have saved him before and then so basically he starts getting sicker and sicker and eventually uh, he dies but before he dies they have a conversation with him my dad sits down next to him and says where do you want to be buried and my grandfather says I want to be buried in the United States um, he's saying this to my father and then my uncles come in and they say where do you want to be buried he says I want to be buried in Korea and the reason why he said to my dad that he wanted to be buried in the States because he knew that my stepmother wouldn't pay for it. And he didn't want to cause more conflict with my stepmother and my dad. And so he lied. And so my uncles, who had very little money, um, took all their life savings and they, they buried him in Korea uh, in, our, in our property. And ever since then, my, my family had nothing to do with my stepmother. They hate her. And so it was just me and my sister and my stepmother and my, my dad. And again, my dad worked all the time. My stepmother stayed at home. My little sister's mentally handicapped. My stepmother couldn't handle it. So when my sister started her period, my stepmother started to beat her. And when I came home and found her beating my sister, I lost it. I picked her up and I threw her across the room. Um, I was a wrestler at the time. I lifted weights a lot. I was very angry. I was an angry young, young person. Uh, and I just threw her across the room and I just threatened to kill her. And my dad came home, um, and then we got in a fight. Not me and my dad, but me and my stepmother got in a fight again. Um, I'm not proud of what I did, but I attacked her again. But I didn't hit her. I just, you know, tried to choke her or whatever, like, get her down. My dad punched me a couple times, and I got up, and he took me. We drove uh, away, and he, he just, we just started to talk. We had, like, a real conversation. I'm like, why? And I said a lot of cuss words, like, why do, you, why do you love her? Why are you staying with her? And for him, I don't think it was about love. It was about uh, arrangement and not wanting to be left again. And so I said, I'm leaving. And so from then on out, I moved. I ran away uh, when I was like 16. Um, before that <clears throat> had all happened to cope with my stepmother and, and all the craziness at home, I started to hang out with the wrong crowd, started skipping school a lot. I was a good student in elementary school. Uh, but middle school and high school, I started to, all my grades started to slip. I started doing drugs a lot, um, meaning like uh, I smoked pot like every day. We would just basically spend our days trying to score pot because we were young. We didn't have any money. So we would steal cartons of cigarettes and sell them at school to buy marijuana. Uh, we would do like, we would steal like prescription drugs to, you know, over-the-counter prescription drugs, not prescription, over-the-counter drugs uh, to get to overdose on that kind of stuff. Like it was just like a miserable life. I just hated my life and the only excitement, the only feelings of uh, fun or, or happiness came from doing things that I knew that were wrong. So we stole a lot, uh, we robbed people, we hurt people a lot, never got arrested, which was a godsend. Um, but my father basically, this is uh, before I ran away, my father basically decided, this is when we lived in Washington, D.C. My father basically decided he needed to do something to save me. And so he quit his job and he moved us to Charlotte in which for some reason, I don't know why I did this, but for some reason in Charlotte, I decided to stop doing drugs, um, stop living that lifestyle. I was just going to reinvent myself. If you guys have ever moved anywhere before, um, it's kind of neat because you can do that. 
nobody knows you. You can act like a totally different personality. And that's what I did. I acted like a, a preppy person. Um, I dressed really nice and talked really nice and tried uh, to work hard in school. Um, that didn't work. Uh, uh, but I joined the wrestling team and kind of became a jock, worked out a lot, uh, just wrestled and, and all that kind of stuff. And that's when I, <coughs> my, mom, my stepmother and I separated and I, I went on my way. So in the beginning, I lived at a friend's house, worked three jobs to make it through high school. Um, my life was pretty miserable. Um, but there was this girl that I liked in marching band. And some of you guys know I, I hate marching band just because it keeps you away from the church. But I used to go to marching band, not because I played any instruments, but I was the roadie. You guys know what a roadie is? Like, he, like he's the guy who'd like take the instruments off the truck. Right? That's, that was my job. And I did that because there was a lot of hot girls in my school because uh, we had a big marching band school, big. Like people would send their kids to that school to, to be a part of marching band. And there was a lot of hot girls. The hot girls were in marching band. They weren't cheerleaders. They were in marching band. So I was like, I'm going to meet some hot girls. So I'd take my guitar. This is when I first started learning how to play guitar. And I would sing and, and try to serenade these girls because we would travel all across the state to do these competitions. And, uh, and I would be the roadie. And uh, <coughs> um, I, I forgot where I was going with the roadie thing. Um, what was I just talking about before the roadie thing? Girls? Oh! I met this girl in marching band. She was really hot. I, I mean, I, I thought she was really hot. And um, she was in the color guard. She wore the spandex thing, the shimmery spandex, whatever, the flag. She would throw the flags, right? I thought she was really hot. So I asked her out, and she said, yes. I'm like, hot diggity. So I took her out. <laughs> guess, I guess where I took her? I took her to Olive Garden because when I was a kid, that was like where you took the ladies. So I took her to Olive Garden. I spent, because I had three jobs, and I was working my butt off, I spent like, maybe $60 that night. And that's a lot if you're not buying alcohol. So it's like appetizer, maybe two appetizers, you know, the entree, then like desserts, you know. So I spent a lot of money on her. And we go back to her place, right? Her mom's there. So I wasn't trying any, like, anything like that, funny business. I was actually kind of a romantic. I wanted to like have real deep relationships. So I take her back and uh, we're talking. I'm like, would you like to go on another date? Because I thought for sure, just knocked out of the park. We got along really, really well. And she's like, no. I'm like, dang it, what the... Uh, you know, I was going to send her a bill, but there was no Venmo back then. So uh, I just said, why? And she says, because you're not a Christian. I'm like, I'm a Christian. <laughs> and I'm like, like this really bad... I mean, obviously, I'm, I'm going to marching band to hook up with girls. And uh, I'm like, I'm a Christian. And she's like, no, you're not. And she kind of shares, you know, what it means to follow Christ. And for some reason, I don't know what happened. I was sitting in her car waiting. We weren't even, like, doing anything. We were just talking about Jesus. This is the lamest date ever. And I'm sitting there like, wow, I really want that. Like, I felt so empty. Like, it was like I was exhausted from my, my whole life and all the craziness that happened. And I was just sitting there like, wow, I really want that. I really want to follow Christ. I want to get my life right. And so I tell her. I said, I want to, I want to believe in Jesus. So she leads me to the Lord right then. So I was thinking, I got a twofer. Jesus and this girl. And then I asked her again if she wanted to go on a date. She said no. I'm like, what the? Why not? She's like, because we're, we're unequally yoked, which is now I know because I have a degree. It's talking about Christians and non-Christians. But I was a Christian. She just said I was a baby Christian, so she couldn't date a baby Christian. So I'm just like, man. So I dated her best friend. This is just terrible, but I did. She regretted it for the rest of her life. She, she really did because I was quite a catch. I was exotic. So the deal is this. The deal... <laughs> They're like mumbling over there. <laughs> so the deal is this. Uh, <laughs> the, 
when I, when I started to follow Christ, I started to, started to change. Um, it was by my senior year, uh, my grades started to get better, which is why I didn't fail high school. Some of you asked, like, how do you graduate? I had a 1.7 GPA in high school. Yes, 1.7. Uh, it takes it takes skill to get a 1.7, but it's because like I was failing almost everything up until my senior year, in which I got like straight A's my senior year because I actually tried. I'm like, oh, Christian study, so I studied, uh, and then so they passed me. The teachers saw what a difference, and they knew I became the president of like Fellowship of Christian Athletes (FCA). Like immediately, I was like in these all these leadership roles, so people saw me and knew me. They're like, hey, that was that you know really bad lazy kid, and now he's like following Jesus, and and so they I think they passed me, and it was in North Carolina too, so they didn't really care. They're like, just go, right? And, uh, and so after I graduated high school, of course, I applied at all these colleges, and nobody accepted me. I don't know why. I actually had a pretty good SAT score, um, but uh, I just didn't have any work ethic. So uh, they didn't accept me, so I just was working as a manager at uh, Mailbox Center, which is now the UPS store. And this guy comes into the, into the, to the shop, and he looks like an old Korean dude. And I don't know any Koreans really that much in Charlotte because I was a little kid when I was going to church in Charlotte. And he comes in and he's like, you're going to be the youth pastor of my church. I'm like, okay. And he's like, be at my church September, blah, 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 whenever, you know, whatever date. I don't remember what date. And I'm like, okay. I look at the calendar. It's like two weeks from then. I'm like, okay. And so I just, for some reason, I don't know why, I just go to the church. I show up. And when I go into the church, I find out that the youth group is three kids. It's the pastor's two sons and the elder son. Like, that's the total, in total youth group. I'm like, what have, I, what have I gotten myself into, right? And, of course, I don't know how to be a youth pastor. I, you know, I basically just got saved, like, a couple years before. I don't have any Bible training. I don't know anything. All I know is I love Jesus with all my heart. That's all I know. And so I go, and I just start talking to these guys, and I'm like, what do you guys like to do? What are, just trying to find anything in common. And the guy was like, I play drums. And the guy was like, I play bass. And the other guy was like, I sing. I'm like, we're going to start a band. And so we start a band. I'm like, I'm not kidding. We started a band. Like immediately the week after, like we had worship and we had preaching. And the preaching was just like me floundering around talking about some Bible verse or something. I had no idea what I was talking about. But we played and we got better. And then like other kids would start joining, right? And then we told the church, like, we need instruments, and none of us had any money, so they started donating all these instruments. I would work at UPS store, and all I, all, I took all my money, and I used it. They didn't pay me as the youth pastor. They didn't pay me, and I didn't have a budget. I used all, 100% of my money on, on, on this youth. And the youth started to grow and grow, and then we had these, like, worship nights, and 200 kids would show up. It was insane. And we did it month after month after month. And our youth group grew from 3 to 60 in three months. Well, actually, pretty instantly. And I came to find out because I thought it was really awesome as a youth pastor. I'm like, dude, look at me. But it's because there's no youth pastors in Charlotte. Like all of the, the, there's so much division amongst the Korean churches in Charlotte that there was not one youth pastor. And so all the church, the kids had nothing to do. And the elders needed the church, the kids to, to go to church somehow. So they're like, oh, we hear that this church has a youth pastor. And they sent them to our church. So we started to have services and, and it got big. And, and then I knew already that I was going to YWAM. So I was a youth pastor for three months. So it was like this huge, like, wow, this really neat thing, like, look at God. And then I go into missions. So the first three, the first three blows in my life, right, what I said, my sister with her seizures, my mom and dad divorcing. In the, in the middle of that, I meet Jesus. And then uh, my stepmother in conflict, and I run away from home, right? Then I get saved. And then the first redemption that happens is that when I go to YWAM, 
right? I get, I, you know, I got saved, and I go to YWAM, Youth with a Mission. It's a missionary organization for young people that don't have college degrees, so we're just a bunch of kids that kind of go in there and just, we love Jesus, so we're going to tell the world about Jesus. So we go and hang out with prostitutes and, and drug dealers and, and those kind of people. That's what YWAM does. They go all over the world and preach the gospel, and they go into dangerous situations because they don't know what they're doing. But God still uses it because God is faithful because he uses the weak, right, to confound the wise or the strong. So, we, I go into YWAM and I start to realize, wow, I really love missions and I really love doing ministry. And then I meet my wife. But she wasn't my wife then. I just saw her across the way. And I told you guys a story during the relationship series uh, where my wife wasn't interested in boys or interested in dating or relationships and I didn't care because I'm a bulldog, right? I take what I want. And so I, I, pursued, my, I pursued her, pursued her, pursued her, and then finally she said, yes, we got married. But that was the first redemption. So in the beginning, when you look at what Satan tried to take away from me, he's talking about divorce, right? My family leaving, my little sister being mentally handicapped, right? My, my family was literally in shambles. My, my stepmother ruining the relationship with, my, with my, my uncles and aunts and my grandmother and then my grandfather dying. But you see God starts switching the beauty for ashes, right? He takes the ashes of my childhood and he hands me a family. And so the first redemption that happened is I met my wife. And I don't deserve her. I, and people oftentimes say all the time that she's far better than me, and I agree. I don't deserve her. And then she started popping out babies. And I thought this was bad, right? Like, I thought we were going to have two, but she wanted to have a lot. Because she really actually found out that she really liked being pregnant. Like, legit, she liked being pregnant. You know how people have horror stories? She was like, this is amazing. You know, like this belly. She has like, you know, like heartburn and she's throwing up. She's like, I love this. <laughs> I'm like, something's wrong with you, woman. Right? But I didn't know this, but I thought two kids was enough and having more would just be a hassle. But what I begin to realize is that my family, like, when I come home, especially on Saturdays, when I come home and I walk through the door and all my kids are like, hey, Appa, you know, and Ezekiel, he's not affectionate at all, so he's like, like this. Um, but then Ada comes and she's dramatic and she hugs me. Ella looks at me like she doesn't want to hug me, but I know she really does, right? And then Josiah's like, you know, Josiah, hey, where's Josiah? Hey, buckaroo. All right. So, you know, like, you start to, oh, Eliezer, I don't know. Eliezer hugs me. So, like, it, it's just, I, like, I all of a sudden feel like everything that Satan had stole from me as a child, God had switched out and he's returned to me. The second uh, redemption is that I didn't have a purpose. Like, just growing up in, 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 in that childhood, it was all about me just getting away from all of the, the sadness, all the, the brokenness in my life. Right? Just trying to erase, trying to distract myself from how much I hated myself and how much I hated my life. Right? And then God switched out and gave me a purpose. He says, do you know that crappy life that you had, that really messed up, that really broken life? He says, you can now use that to help other people. And so he switched my life. He says, you know, like all of the giftings, my dad, when I was growing up, he's like, you're not going to be anything, you know? And I'm just like, well, that sucks, you know? I'm like, I'm good. Like, I have a lot of friends. He's like, are your friends going to feed you? You know, and I kind of realized, like, my dad was completely wrong because, like, my people skills really helped me do my job, right? But it was very limited in my father's understanding. He thought I just needed to be a doctor, and if I wasn't smart enough, I could be a dentist. And if I wasn't smart enough, then I could be some sort of assistant. If I wasn't smart enough, you know, he just had these three, four jobs that he thought that I could do, or I should do, right? Otherwise, I'll just be a garbage man, right? My dad was just, like, so extreme. Instead, God gave me a purpose. So, and then the third redemption is that my mother, 
right, uh, who I lost, I told you, when she, she moved away when I was 11, I, saw, I sought her out. I called my uncle, and I'm like, I just need my, my mom's phone number because I knew that he probably had it. Because uh, my mom would still call my, my family members and ask how I was doing. And they would be really honest. Your son is on drugs. Your son is failing school. Your son hates his family. Your son ran away. I'm sh- I know she heard all of it, right? Because everyone just kind of, all my family, they just felt bad for me. They thought because my parents had divorced, they didn't know anything else about my, the rest of my life. They thought my, because my parents divorced, my life was all screwed up, and they just felt bad for me. I was the black sheep of the family. Like, everybody else is making it, but Howard is the one that's really screwed up, and he had so much potential. That's what the, the kind of things that they would say. So I said, I told my uncle, I was 21, I was like, I need my, da- my mom's phone number, you need to tell me. And I found out she was living in New York, and I called her and I told her, I said, I want to come see you. And we were in my- YWAM, me and Raylan, we were in YWAM, and we did this ministry up in New York City over the New Year, so I said, I'm going to come see you. And so she, she hired a car to come pick me up from the hotel, which is right next to the World Trade Center, by the way, um, the World Trade Centers b- before they blow up, blew up. And she picked me up, well, she hired a car to pick me up and take, take her to her apartment, and we just spent the day talking. <coughs> and it was really cool because, like, you know, she was buying me all those gifts and stuff like that, which is what Korean parents do. Um, but it felt like God was, like, returning back to me the things that were stolen. Uh, but, but even better, because now as an adult, I could understand them better. And then the second time I visited, um, she wanted my wife to come along, and, man, she treated me like crap. She treated Ray Lynn like she was the queen. Seriously. And even like uh, my mom owned a nail salon and the Korean ladies were speaking in Korean. I can understand Korean. They're like, your, your son is so ugly. How did he get such a hot wife? <laughs> I'm just like, I can understand you. You know, and they're like, ha, ha, ha. And she treated my wife like a queen. And, and it was really cool because when we got married, um, you know, like it, my mom was there. And it, was, it was amazing. My mom had thought like I didn't have any friends which is really sad. Um, but our wedding was huge, like standing room only. Like people were like standing all around. Like you couldn't sit down. There were so many people at our wedding. And this was in a little podunk town in Tennessee called Adams. And my mom was there and everyone was hugging us as they were going out. And my mom was crying. She's like, I can't believe you have so many friends. <laughs> I'm like, yeah, mom, they're Raylands. Um, <laughs> so it was great. And then we started popping out babies. And, you know, my mom loved that, of course. And then, uh, so this was only like a few years that we got to, that I had got to reclaim all of this relationship. And then we go see my mom once. And then she says, uh, I have cancer. I'm like, what? You know, of course, she tells Raylan and Raylan's weeping. And I'm, I'm just thinking, man, like, I don't understand. Like, what do you mean you have cancer? Like, how bad is it? I thought she'd just go through chemo and get better. She had stomach cancer. She wasn't able to eat. And every time um, I would hear how she's doing, she was getting smaller and skinnier and smaller and smaller. And um, finally, my cousin, she called me. She says, you need to fly up. This was only a few years ago. She said, you, fly, you need to fly up to New York and come see your mom. She's going to die. And so I sat in the hospital room doing my studies. Like um, I was in Bible college doing my studies, and I just looked at my mom, and she was a skeleton. Like, she really looked like a skeleton with skin on. And I just was trying to focus, you know, on something else, not think about my mom and my past and, like, my life and how Satan had just tried to steal everything from me and what God was trying to speak to me in this time. And so I just sat there feeling really, really numb. And then my mom died while I was there. I was sitting there, and she passed away. And uh, I was really thankful that I got to be a, be a part of that. But it was kind of like this... 
this thought that like life is just really, really hard. Your lives, you will face hardship. This is, this is the thing. You will face hardship. But the only hope that we actually have, that God will actually come and he'll trade our ashes for beauty, that's the only, that's the only shot we got. And so like the three heavy blows in my life, they could have just remained heavy blows. I could have stayed in drugs. I, my friends were getting arrested for coke uh, when I left, when my dad moved me out of that, that, that neighborhood or that, that city. Right? I, could have, I could have stayed there. I could have uh, just dated around, had broken relationships, and, and, and just hurt people and just lived for myself or tried to make money. But God promised that he would trade my, my ashes for beauty. And I just figured, like, at that moment, I'm like, God, as I'm sitting there, my mom is dead, I'm thinking, what else do I have? What, what else can give me any kind of hope that my life would have some semblance of, of goodness or joy or peace? Not those cliche words, but real joy, peace, goodness. I realized then, I, it doesn't matter what happens in my life. There's no, no nothing, no one I can else else I could turn to. And I'm not saying that, you know, after, that pa- after my mom passed and everything was okay and all this stuff. No, I was still deeply broken as far as my entire life goes. I'm carrying that baggage even today. I've been to count- through counseling a lot of times. I deal with seasonal depression. Whenever stress happens or struggles, I get depressed. And I don't feel like doing anything. And I just kind of sit. And my wife, will know, my wife knows. She's had to deal with it for many years. Even to the point where my kids, I don't even talk to my kids when they, were, when they were really young, when I didn't know how to handle it. But I guarantee you, man, it's been the Lord that has been shifting all of that and healing my heart. Otherwise, I wouldn't be able to stand before you. Like, people think that I'm great, but really, I'm a broken person. And the only reason I have any goodness in me is because of what Christ has done in my life. And so like I said before, I don't need your respect. I just need you, when you see me, you see there is a mark of grace. There is grace. I know that Christ is real because when I see Howard's life and the shell that he was and the stories that he tells and that he is no longer that, he is moving towards the light. He is moving towards God. And that when you look at that, you say there's always hope for me. Because some of you in here are cutters. Some of you have been sexually abused. Some of you have drug addictions. Some of you have other addictions, video games, distractions. Some of you hate your parents. Some of you think your parents hate you. Some of you have no purpose in your life, have no idea what you want to do in your life. But there's hope. That's what I realized when my mom was sitting there dying and there's something like constantly attacking me, Satan or, or the world or things falling apart or even me, my own sin. I knew that there's the hope that comes from following Christ. There's nothing else. And so you guys can grow up graduate high school and decide, you know what, uh, you remember I was, a, I was a Christian in high school, but now I'm a little bit older and wiser. So I don't, I don't really need Jesus. Or maybe some of you are like, you know, I'll, I'll really become serious about Jesus when I get married and have kids. But, high school, but during college, I want to party. I want to I do the college experience. Maybe you think all those things, but this is the, the, real, the reality of it, is life is really, really hard. And right now you might be okay. But the fact of the matter is, brokenness will come in your life. It's just a matter of, of time. 
brokenness will come. None of you will come to me at the end of your life and say, hey, Howard, my life was perfect. I didn't have any struggles. I didn't have any sorrows. I didn't have any problems. No, you will lose people. You will struggle with your inner demons, the things that, that, that torment you, your, the view of yourself, your insecurities, your fears. You will struggle. And I want my life to point to the fact that Christ has traded my ashes the sorrow, the mourning, the, the ripped robes. He's, he's traded them for beauty. And he says, there's an option. I am not perfect. I struggle just like you. I struggle with the same things you struggle with. But the difference is that I'm farther along in this journey of following Christ. And so I hope, I hope when you hear my story, all of the blows that have happened in my life and how God has traded those things for, for beauty, that you would think, you know what? I want to follow Christ because I think, I think Howard's right. I don't want any of you walking away from this place thinking, Christ is an option. Christ is an option. I don't want you thinking that. And I'm not going to insult your intelligence by saying that, that when you start following Jesus, your whole life will fall into order and everything will be wonderful. It won't. The blows will still keep coming. And some of them will be instigated by you. Some of them will be created by you. It doesn't change the fact that Christ is not, or Christ is the same. It doesn't change that He's the one that you can still rely on and depend on. Those times and those broken times, and I, I haven't given you all the details, but those broken times, I felt Jesus more in those times of despair and brokenness and in depression, even pulling me out of depression, than ever in the times where I thought everything was good. So I just want to encourage you guys. I don't know where you are in your faith. Some of you I do, but some of you guys here maybe are new and you're not sure if you want to follow Christ. But I just want to encourage you to, to spend time getting to know the Lord. I'm not going to be all emotional and be like, all, all eyes closed, every head bowed. No, no. You spend the time getting to know the Lord. You read the Gospels. Read Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John. Those are the Gospels of Jesus' story. Look at who Jesus is. Don't think about the Christians that you know, right? Or who say that they're Christians. Read the Gospels. Read Mark. That's the shortest one if you, if you don't like to read. Read Mark. And start looking at who Jesus is and say, hey, do I want to follow this guy? Do I want to obey his teachings? Do I believe that he's the one that's going to save my life? And then come talk to me. Come talk to my staff. Start following Jesus and we'll show you how. And for those of you guys that already say that you're following Jesus... Is he really your hope? Or do you just, are you just going through the motions? Because I don't want any of you to follow Jesus just with motions, but to really get to know who he is and follow him with your heart. That he would be your hope. I love the, the last one. They will be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord for the display of his splendor. Oaks of righteousness. Do you guys know oaks? Those big trees, wind blows, they don't fall over. They're huge. They're tough. When we split wood, my son, Josiah, he splits wood for us a lot for a fireplace. And oak is so hard to cut through. It's so dense. For the display of his splendor, it glorifies the Lord. It points to God, man. You are strong oak that's immovable and you're pointing to God. That's what my life, I want my life to be like. You look at my life, scars and all, and you're like, man, that is an oak that's pointing to the Lord. Is that good? Let me pray for you. Lord, I just thank you that people's journeys in here are so varied, but at the same time, 
God, we know that you are faithful and, and it's simple, Lord, that we know that when we call on your name, you're there. And God, we, we just pray that you would encourage our students, Lord, every single one of them, to call on you, to look towards you, and not themselves, and not their own ideas of how life should be lived, but they would submit completely to you. And I just pray that you would woo them, Lord, that you would, you would draw them to you, and that this wouldn't be a moment of, of weakness or emotion, but, but serious contemplation, meditation, thinking, getting to know you, falling in love with who you are. Lord, I thank you that you are not the way the world portrays you. You're more than just a figurehead, but you are my Lord and you're my Savior. And I just pray that for every single person in here. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Offering buckets right there on the way out. Please give. Um, the, the, the group keeps growing and the church keeps asking, like, why aren't your offerings?